Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. Please follow along with me. We're going to be reading, continuing in Acts, we're at chapter 13. This is God's Word, and it is eternally true. Now there were, there were at Antioch, in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manaen, who had been brought up with, the Herod, with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they had reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John as their helper. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Pathos, they found a magician a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. The Elemis, the magician, for so his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who is also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him and said, You who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. But John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading of the law and the prophets, The synagogue officials sent to them, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out from it. For a period of 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. When he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. After these things, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. After he had removed him, He raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, 
who will do all my will. From the descendants of this man, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. After John had proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And while John was completing his course, he kept saying, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. But behold, one is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brethren, the sons of Abraham's family and those among you who fear God, to us the message of this salvation has been sent. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. When they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him up from the dead. And for many days, he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he is spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him, Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Therefore, take heed so that the things spoken of in the prophets may not come upon you. Behold, you scoffers and marvel and perish, for I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. As Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. Now when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, were urging them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust of their feet in protest against them 
and went to Iconium. And the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. This is a major turning point in our study, the book of Acts. We move here from a focus on Judea and Peter, the apostle, to a focus on the apostle Paul and his advance of the gospel in the Gentile lands. Everything up to this point has been significant in its own right as part of the history of the founding of the church, but there's a sense in which it's all been leading up to this moment and the events that come after in the book. Taken as a whole, the book of Acts reads like one big apology or defense for the ministry of the Apostle Paul. There's even a theory that suggests that this was prepared by Luke as part of Paul's legal defense before Caesar, who he stands trial before at the end of his life. I don't completely buy that theory, but it's almost plausible because of how much this reads like a defense of Paul's ministry, the whole book taken as a whole. Up to this point, Luke has referred to Paul by his Hebrew name, Saul. And here in this chapter, Luke pivots to calling him Paul. That starts in verse 9. And this is probably an alternate name that Paul has had uh, since his childhood. He was a Hellenistic Jew, which means he was a Jew raised in a Gentile uh, context and uh, would have taken on a, a Gentile name for the ease of his neighbors, just like Chinese students who come and study here very kindly take on an English name so we don't have to struggle so much to, to pronounce their name or remember it. So as far as we know, this change of name for Saul, from Saul to Paul is not the result of any divine revelation, but simply a way that Luke is marking the significant moment and transition in Paul's life and ministry, his unveiling as a full apostle of Jesus Christ. Up to this point, Paul's known about his calling for, on his life from Jesus. He's known it for a lot of years, but it's not been clear. He's not been freely exercising that gift and ministry in the world. But here, it changes. Here, he's unleashed by the Holy Spirit on the world. This beginning to Paul's apostolic ministry is a long, has been a long time coming for him. This is 14 years since when Jesus interrupted him on the road to Damascus as he was going there to, to capture Christians. Jesus gets in his face, gets in his way, converts him. That was 14 years prior to this moment. Uh, 14 years since the time when God sent, the Spirit sent a very scared Ananias to the persecutor Paul in Damascus with bearing this message. He says, Jesus says to Ananias, go and tell Paul that he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So had, Paul had 14 years to ponder those words, that prophecy about him given by the Lord Jesus. 14 years to grow in his understanding of the scriptures, 14 years to work out if Jesus is the Messiah, what does that mean for everything, including Jew-Gentile relations? He had 14 years to think about this, to study the spiritual condition of his countrymen, and to kind of understand and anticipate what he's going to run into, what he can expect 
to meet with in his undertakings. Fourteen years to test his wings as a budding preacher and evangelist and apologist. And here is the moment when all of this comes together and the Holy Spirit launches him on his task. There's a lot of verses in this chapter, 52. Not the longest we've had, but close to the longest we've had. I'm going to do my best to get us through it today uh, and to get the main ideas and message across. There's four distinct scenes or episodes in this chapter. The first takes place in Syrian Antioch. That's the Antioch we've been learning about in the last few chapters. Just above Israel in the neighboring country, Syria. And then the second scene is, takes place on the island of Cyprus, just out on the Mediterranean um, ocean there. And scenes three and four uh, are two back-to-back Sabbath days that are set in uh, Antioch in Turkey. There's two Antiochs. This is the other one, Pisidian Antioch, which is in modern-day Turkey. Let's look at the first scene. The setting of the first scene is Antioch in Syria. And Luke begins by giving us the names of the pastors there in the church ministering together. There's a, a superfluity of them. And that's Luke. Luke actually wants us to think that and realize that as Paul and Barnabas are, are leaving there, they've been working there for the last year. As they're leaving there, they're leaving things in a good state. The church is under, in good hands. They're not going to be desperate because of this calling on their life. Notice that Barnabas is mentioned first in the list and Paul is mentioned last in the list. Not interesting? This is almost certainly an indication of the hierarchy of the pastors and the structure of things in Antioch at that time. Paul had not been, as I said, recognized as an apostle up to this point. He's just one of the pastors and not even the lead pastor. Barnabas had been sent there from Jerusalem to oversee this great new work among the Gentiles, and he had gone looking for Paul and brought him down, and they'd ministered together, but it's very clear from the way Luke gives their names and refers to people, that Barnabas has been the top dog. And, Barna- and Paul, as far as Luke understands, is just in there in the mix. Other pastors there include a man named Simeon, who is also called Niger, so probably a black man from Africa. There's another African named Lucius of Cyrene. That's in northern Africa, where he hails from. And a very interesting man, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. That's Herod who had had John the Baptist beheaded and had been instrumental in the crucifixion of Jesus. So this is, this is that Herod. And this is one of his schoolmates or uh, a, man, a boy who had brought, been brought into the court of the Herods and been raised along with Herod the Tetrarch. Isn't it amazing that he found his, 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 his path led him to the Lord and to minister and the humble persecuted, despised Christians. And Herod is up there, and here he is doing the work of the Lord. Calvin says that it's evident from this little list of pastors that this is evidence of the free grace of God that he's poured out liberally on this church so that streams of, of good men could be diverted over to, in new directions without harming the church behind. And he says, so even in our time, God enriches certain churches more than others so that they may be nurseries for propagating the teaching of the gospel. Isn't that sweet? Antioch in Syria was such a place of nursery for training and raising up leaders. God has blessed us over many years to be used like that to, as, a, as a nursery 
for raising up preachers and diverting streams to Indianapolis and Cincinnati and Evansville. It's very sweet how God has used us. We want to continue, if God wills, to be used like that. Well, they're busy together, these pastors. In verse 2, they're ministering to the Lord and they're fasting, which probably means they're seeking the Lord's will for the future of their ministry in this church. They've gotten it to a place. They've got all these, they've got a place of strength. They've got their feet under them. What next, Lord? And they're fasting and seeking the Lord's will for the future. And the Lord, the Spirit, probably by a prophetic revelation, maybe in a service, maybe one of the prophets stands up and has a word from the Lord. The Holy Spirit speaks these words. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Send out your senior and your junior pastor together. <laughs> Divert that stream in a new direction which I've appointed for them. And we don't know if the Spirit um, gave more specific instructions about the ministry, the itinerary, or what. We don't know if this is something they were left to come up with on their own. But it was clear that he wanted them set apart for a new work. And then we know this, that when they had fasted again and prayed, they laid their hands on Barnabas and Saul and sent them away. That's verse 3. There appear to be two types of laying on of hands in the book of Acts. The first is ordaining for the purpose of ordaining a man, setting him apart to a sacred office, and establishing him in the authority of that office. Paul and Barnabas probably already have that status in the church. The second type is, is commissioning, the setting apart of a man or a group of people for a special mission or special work or duty. That's what we see going on here. They're laying on their hands, acknowledging the church's backing and blessing upon the Holy Spirit's call for this new mission and work. Well, that's the first scene. It takes place there in, um, in Syrian Antioch. The second scene takes place in Barnabas's home country, the island of Cyprus. You want to see a cool map? Stevens encourages us to use maps. We've got a cool map there. There's Syria, which is just above Israel. Israel's down here. Syria. Antioch has been, is there. And they set sail in, for this next scene. It takes place on the island of Cyprus. It starts in Salamis and ends in Paphos. They cross the whole island ministering there. Notice the strong connection in between verses 3 and 4. This is the transition between those scenes. The strong connection between the will of the Holy Spirit and the commissioning work and, and approval given and the, the laying on of hands of the church. There's an inseparable connection that Luke sees between these things. It says in verse 3, when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. Next verse, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there sailed to Cyprus. Don't take lightly our gatherings, our work together, our elders and deacons meetings. These are places where we believe and have reason, scriptural reason to believe the Holy Spirit is with us. Jesus Christ rules the church from heaven by his spirit through his people. And when we deliberate and argue and come to do the work of coming to agreement and of coming of one mind and, and voting even, we believe that this is how the Lord leads his church. And don't take it lightly. It's easy to be dismissive of it and just think, well, it's just, that's just business stuff, you know. But no, even our business meetings are meetings of the people of God where we seek the Lord's will. And as we deliberate and vote and do our work, 
we in faith step back from it as we're going to see the apostles step back from their work in a couple of chapters, in chapter 15, and they say, it seemed good to us and to the Holy Spirit. And here we see this unity between Jesus and his church by his Spirit. What happens in Cyprus? Well, they arrive in Salamis on the eastern coast of the island, and what do they do there? They begin proclaiming, verse 5, proclaiming the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. Why would Paul called apostle to the Gentiles, go first to the Jewish synagogues. Why would he do that? Well, this is a pattern and a strategy that the apostle Paul will repeat many times over in the course of his missions. And the reason for this, I think, is twofold. First, it's just biblically right to do. This is the priority. This, 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 Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He is the fulfillment of promises God made to his people, Israel. And so it is right that this people be given the first chance to hear the, 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 word, for the right of first refusal. And so Paul goes there. It's just biblically right and appropriate. And these are Paul's countrymen. His heart genuinely goes out to them. And their unbelief and hardness of heart and rejection of the gospel will give him much anguish and grief. It's also smart strategy. If you want to find a ready audience of Gentiles who know something already about the Jewish scriptures and the prophecies of the Old Testament and have a hope stirred up in them to begin with of a Messiah and a Savior, you can find them in the Jewish synagogues in the Greek-speaking world. We've talked about this. There are a bunch of hangers-on called God-fearers who have been on the fringes of God's people. They've been weighing, how far in do I want to go? I'm, I find Yahweh and this one God compelling to me. I worship him. I attend the services. I hear his scriptures. I'm not sure I'm ready to accept circumcision and all the way of life of the Jews because I would have to radically give up everything <laughs> to do that, but I'm interested. <laughs> and there, this was the reality in the synagogues throughout the Roman world where God had spread his people. And so there was a ready audience of Gentiles who were already somewhat up to speed <laughs> with the history of things and had a hope of the Messiah that Paul could build on and work with. That's the second reason it's strategic. So they go to the synagogues. That's where they start. And that's the pattern that will continue city after city. Barnabas and Saul go through the island in this fashion from east coast to west until they come to the capital city of Paphos, where in verse 6 it says, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet, whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul or the governor of the island, Sergius Paulus, a, a, a Roman, a man of intelligence. The Bar-Jesus, Barnabas means son of encouragement. Bar-Jesus means son of Jesus or son of Joshua. He's also called Elimus in verse 8. This man, Elimus, is probably an apostate Jew. Jews, God's people did not countenance magicians. This, these, this was hateful to God, as it should be hateful to God's people still. The occult, divination, these arts. This is probably an apostate Jew who pretends to be an oracle of God and to, to be 
gifted for speaking mysteries and telling the future, telling fortunes and that sort of thing. And he's, he's weaseled his way into the good graces of this proconsul Sergius Paulus. He's just like the Roman governor of this province. Sergius Paulus, for his part, is described by Luke as an intelligent man, which probably means Luke's way of saying he's fair-minded, he's curious intellectually, he's interested in the goings-on of his island and any new particularly religious ideas that are out there. And so he hears that Paul and Barnabas are in town and he he calls for them. I want to hear the good word of God from these men. Come preach to me. Now this encounter right here, this little scene, this this interaction between these three parties is the, the moment of Paul's unveiling as an apostle. And it's from this moment on that Paul, that, I mean, he's, he's, he's been called Saul up to this point. This is the moment Luke chooses to change how he refers to him. He's, it's right here in verse 9. He says, Saul, who is also called Paul. This whole scene reminds me of a scene from the Lord of the Rings with, uh, I think it's in the two towers in Rohan, Theoden's um, uh, throne room, you know, and Wormtongue. The agent of Sauron, or Sauron, right, Sauron, is there at his side whispering and deceiving and keeping him under his spell. And Gandalf and his, Gandalf the Grey, who is Gandalf the White, but in disguise as a decrepit old aging Gandalf the Grey, comes in and he's trying to get Theoden to do something and, and to, he's appealing to him and Wormtongue is we casting his spell over him and deceiving him. And then Gandalf throws off his robes and rebukes Wormtongue and sends him packing. You know the scene I'm talking about in the Lord of the Rings? It's a great scene. I think likely uh, there's so much, there's, these scenes are so similar. I think that uh, Tolkien must have borrowed that idea from this passage of Acts. Barnabas and Saul are preaching to the governor, but Elimus the magician is, verse 8, opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. He's trying to thwart them. He's saying, no, these are lies. Don't listen to these men. This is nonsense or whatever he's saying. Maybe he's trying to protect his position in the court, and he understands that this is a challenge to all of that, or maybe he just hates the truth. And this is, Paul is incensed, as he should be. In verse 9, we see that Paul, who was also known, or Saul, who was also known as Paul, and from here on out, he is known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him, Elimus, and said, you who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the way, straight ways of the Lord? Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, And you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist, darkness fell over him. And he had to be led around, couldn't see anymore. That's apostolic authority. The likes of which we have not seen since Peter denounced Ananias and Sapphira early on in Acts. This is a negative miracle. It's rare as miracles go. Normally they attest to the compassion and mercy of God by healing people. Sometimes, rarely, they are pronouncements of judgment. And here we see such a thing. And this is apostle stuff. And it's clear that the whole part, this changes the dynamics of the whole group immediately. 
from this, and, and Luke signif- signifies this to us in a number of ways in how he changes, how he refers to people. So the first one is obvious. Saul's Greek name is now Paul, and that's how he's known hereafter. We also have been he- hearing about Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas and Saul up to this point. Now, from this point on, it's Saul and his company. Saul and his people, people with him. The third thing that Luke points out in this, right at this time is John Mark leaves them. John Mark is the nephew of Barnabas, the head pastor Barnabas. His nephew's along for the ride. And the best guess of most commentators is that he leaves because he's unhappy that his uncle Barnabas is being over, out, outshined by the Apostle Paul. And that Apostle Paul has gotten too big for his britches. We don't know for sure, but that's everyone's best guess. And it makes sense to me. That turns out to be a real sore spot. Whatever was the cause, the John Mark's leaving at this time from their company is something the Apostle Paul and Barnabas uh, fight about and divide over in the future. The fourth thing is that Paul, from this point on, just exercises clear leadership. He takes the initiative. He's the main speaker. If there's work to be done, Paul's at the center of it and taking the lead. He's in on the action from here on out. So this is Paul's unveiling as an apostle. Now, the final two scenes of this chapter take place in modern-day Turkey in Pisidian Antioch. You can look at the map and see that, where they go next. Okay, they've been on Cyprus here. They set sail up to here to Perga and Pamphylia, and they probably go on foot over the mountains here north to Antioch. Now, they're Antioch, Antioch. This is Pisidian Antioch, very different place, but it has the same name. This Antioch is an important Roman colony, and Paul has a way of choosing important cities. He's he's not dumb, this man. He's a very sharp guy, and he knows he's a good strategist. And so he chooses important cities as a place to start his ministry because he knows if the gospel takes root there, it will spread out from there to the lesser towns and villages. So that's where he focuses his work. This was known at the time, as little Rome. It's a Roman colony, mostly probably built to serve the needs of a decommissioned army. Who, there's, a, there's a lot of men serving in this vast empire, a big military. Rome cannot take them all. Everybody wants to go back to Rome. There's not space and not enough food for them back to Rome. So Rome invests in these projects, building up Rome-like cities around the empire. And that's probably what this is one of kind of home away from home for retired army officers. It was, as far as we can tell, a really grand place with a lot of Romanesque architecture and modeled after Rome itself. And as before, Paul goes first to the synagogue. He and Barnabas sit down and join in on a Sabbath day service, verse 14. And after the reading of the Law and the Prophets, they're invited by the local leaders to address the people if they have something that they would like to share or say to the people by way of exhortation. The privileges of the floor were something granted to visiting um, rabbis, teachers, 
dignified Jewish men. And so Paul, that's another reason why Paul goes to the, to the synagogues. He knows they're going, to want, they're going to give him an opportunity to say something because he's new. So that, that's what we see happening. Paul, not Barnabas, again, a sign of Paul's new status. He stands and addresses the people. Men of Israel, Jews, and you who fear God, Gentile seekers, who are also here, listen to me. And he proceeds to preach a wonderful message, a very moving and persuasive message, aimed to try to convince everyone there, and especially his countrymen, the Jews, to accept the Messiahship of Jesus Christ. This, would probably, this is probably an example of the type of message. This is like a standard sermon that Paul would preach in the synagogues um, when he would go places. This is a very... It has a, and it's, it's the same kind of logic and structure of sermons that the Apostle Peter has preached in similar contexts. It's, it's rehearsing the history of, of Israel, leading up to Jesus, getting as fast as they can to King David, because Jesus and King David are connected by way of a covenant promise made to King David. And Jesus is shown to be the fulfillment, God's fulfillment of that promise. I've just summarized a whole bunch of verses right there. We don't have time to get into them, but I, there's a really interesting turning point in the sermon that I want to draw your attention to. After he's got there, he's got up through the history, the judges, Samuel, the kingmaker, Saul, David, and Jesus, the fulfillment of the promises to David. We get this. Paul, again, in verse 20, I think 25 or 26. Bear with me. Yeah, 26, he says, Brethren, sons of Abraham's family, and those among you who fear God, to us the message of salvation has been sent. To us. We're here hearing this message of salvation together right now. It's come to us. For the, and here's how it came about. This is really interesting. And we start to feel right here the difficult undercurrent of this whole situation and this we start to feel, really, folks, the sovereign power and authority of God in salvation. Hardening the hearts of those who he hardens. Softening the hearts of those who he softens. And this, even, that, that's resident in the way Jesus died. And that's what Paul, where Paul takes us. Look at this, verse 27. He says, for those who live in Jerusalem... This is how Jesus came to be our Messiah. He was not just born, but he died. And here's how it came about. Those, our countrymen back in Jerusalem, and their rulers, they recognized neither him nor the utterances of the prophets that they had read to them every Sabbath. They did not understand it, and they did not recognize Jesus for who he was. And they fulfilled those very scriptures by condemning him. That is massively uncomfortable. Isn't that amazing? It's really struck me just thinking about this. That's how God, he, fulfill, he fulfilled his own prophecies 
through the wicked disobedience and rebellion and hard-heartedness of his own covenant people. And that's how he made them a savior, by motivating them through their own rejection of him to have him put to death. He points out that Jesus didn't deserve it. He was innocent. That they put him to death on the cross. They asked Pilate, against Pilate's better judgment, (laughs) to have this done. They demanded that it be done. They pressured him into it. And they carried out in the process, verse 29, all that was written concerning him. And they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. They thought they had finished the job and got rid of this fool. But God vindicated him by raising him from the dead, verse 30. And he, he appeared to many people, many of his disciples, and he made them witnesses and sent them out to declare the truth of his resurrection. He is alive. And then he says, just as the Psalms, this is all fulfillment of prophecy, just as the Psalms and Isaiah say, and here he quotes Psalm 2, he quotes Psalm, or Isaiah 55, and then also the psalm we're going to sing at the end of this service, but don't go too long. Psalm 16, which is a psalm that Peter had used at this point in his own sermon on this occasion, where, where there's a prophecy spoken by David, which seems to be concerning David, but the apostles say can't be fulfilled in David. And that is a prophecy that goes like this, he will not suffer his holy one to undergo decay. David said those words, he will not suffer his holy one to undergo decay. And so Paul does what Peter does, the same moment, makes the same argument, makes the same point. He says, guys, David died. His body's in the ground. He's rotten. So this is talking about somebody else. It's a prophecy. And it's prophesying of Jesus Christ who was raised before his body could undergo decay. And then he says, verse 37, 38 rather, Therefore let it be known to you, brethren, that through him, through this raised Jesus, this Messiah vindicated by God, attested to by his witnesses, through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Now, it's not hard to see, as Paul throws that last line in, why Gentiles, hangers-on, who haven't been found it within them to fully jump in and dive in all the way and accept Judaism all fully, would be excited by that phrase. Jesus came and he offers you and grants you salvation and status in his family independent of this other order and structure and requirements. It's not hard to see why they would respond to that joyfully. You mean this comes to me as a Gentile? But it's also not hard to see why the Jews would find that really difficult to accept. This is who they are. This is what they have for many generations upheld.
Paul ends with the final warning and appeal from the prophet Habakkuk. He says in verse 40, Therefore, take heed so that the things spoken of you in the prophets may not come upon you. Listen carefully. This is what God has warned. Behold, you scoffers, mockers, and marvel and perish. For I, the Lord, am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. Paul is saying, I don't want this, brothers, to be true of you, but it is warned of. So take heed. How are you going to respond? This is your chance. How do they respond? Well, at the end of the service, people were begging to hear more. (laughs) Come back next week. We want to hear more about this next Sabbath day. Come, speak to us again. The God-fearing Gentiles in particular seem to be struck by this message, and they're following Paul down the street through the week, probably, asking questions, wanting to hear more. And Paul and Barnabas are encouraging them to keep on, to continue in the grace of God. You've heard an announcement of God's grace. Keep holding on to it. Keep persevering in faith and trust in that promise and in Jesus. This takes us to the fourth and final scene, the following week at the Sabbath, at at the synagogue again on the Sabbath. And this is both joyful and tragic. And it's, a, it's, it's something that's a pattern that ha, that's set here that becomes very routine and normal, the Apostle Paul, or very usual in terms of the, the, the two responses, responses of faith on the part of the Gentiles and fa- the part of unbelief and hostility and rejection on the part of the Jews. Verse 44, the next Sabbath... Nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. So word got around. This was an amazing thing. People wanted to hear what was going on. Nearly the whole city came together. Verse 45. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul, and they were blaspheming. What does it mean to blaspheme, kids? Anybody know what it means to blaspheme? Yeah, to, to speak something that's untrue or false about God. To curse God even. They're so filled with jealousy and rage and they, had no, they didn't have any good arguments. So they resorted to blaspheming. And this is again this pattern that emerges here. That the Jews, after hearing the gospel message, persist in their unbelief and become very jealous of the instant reception and joyful reception of this message on the part of the Gentiles. It says in verse 45, they saw the crowds and were filled with jealousy. Why were they jealous? Why were they jealous? Man, we're the teachers. We're the teachers here. These are our proselytes, our converts. We've been putting a lot of effort into these Gentiles. We had them really close. Some of them are like just within days, I think, from joining up, you know, going all in. We're the, we've been upholding these things. You know, we have a lot invested in this. 
And then you just come along and you tell everybody that they can have salvation apart from the law of Moses. All they have to do is trust in your guy, Jesus. Come on. Of course they're going to receive that and get excited about it. Of course crowds are going to show up to that. Come on. It's not hard to follow the logic, I think, of their, their jealousy and how they feel threatened by this and where they go in their hard-hearted unbelief. This new teaching is dangerous. This is going up, to up, upend everything. All godliness is, is in crisis right now. We got to get rid of these guys. And that's what they do. Well, Barnabas and Paul, though, take a moment to address them one more time. And here's what they say. Here's my summary. Okay, okay, listen, Jews. Okay, listen. We came to you first. And that's only appropriate. It's right for us to do that. The gospel is of the Jews first and also of the, of the Greeks. You could have joined us and reaped this harvest together for God. Think about that. You could have been ahead of, you are ahead in your understanding of the scriptures. He's your Messiah. You could have, the lights could have come on like that through faith. And you could have stood with us and proclaimed the good news. And we could have together reaped this joyful harvest among the Gentiles, standing together as brothers. But, verse 46, since you reject or repudiate the gospel and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us. I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. So the Gentile audience is thrilled. Not because they despise their Jewish neighbors, but this message is so hopeful and joyous. They believe and they're thrilled by it. And verse 48, as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. That's an amazing statement, isn't it? The sovereign power and authority of God in salvation is all through this passage. That's just one way we see it, but that's a beautiful statement. As many as been appointed to eternal life believed. Do you refuse to believe? You think you're in control of that decision in your life. You think you're the master of your, of, your, of your fate? Nope. You're under the authority, the sovereign authority and decrees of God. You think you believe? Good. That's because you've been appointed by God to life. And that should be a great comfort to you as you think, I... I I know about myself that I don't have it within me to do what's right or to even believe, but God has appointed me to life. He has elected me and chosen me and pulled me out. I'll never forget, I think it's Ginger Mahoney, when she shared her testimony one Thanksgiving Eve, she said, here's my testimony. God reached down into the miry pit and he pulled me out. <laughs> That's my testimony. That's the testimony of a Christian. And it's the testimony of somebody who understands I can't get out of my mess. I'm dead in my trespasses and sins. 
And God had mercy. The sovereign the sovereignty of God in election is the mysterious and troubling doctrine that undergirds this whole passage and this whole tension that's going to play itself out over and over again through this book. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. What are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? The jealous, unbelieving Jews stirred up trouble for Paul and Barnabas. They got the, looks like they got the God-fearing wives, the, gen, the wives of the officials of the city. Who It was not uncommon for the wives of, of Gentile dignitaries to be among these God-fearers. They took a special interest in um, the things of God among the Jews. Well, they, the Jews who were jealous stirred them up, turned them against Paul, and they went home and complained to their husbands and got their husbands stirred up. And they enacted a persecution to drive Paul and Barnabas out of their region. They didn't want them there anymore. And so Paul and Barnabas together in verse 51, they do what Jesus taught his disciples to do whenever they met an inhospitable home or city. They stand and as a, a gesture of judgment upon them, they shake the dust off their feet and say, whatever that means, <laughs> some sort of protest against the city. And it says they went to Iconium, which is what transpires in the next chapter, and Pastor Baker is going to lead us through that next week. And then the final verse says, and the disciples, those who had heard and received the, the news and had the Holy Spirit implant true faith in their heart, the disciples, where is it? They were continually filled, it says, with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So the, it took root. And this trouble, and the, even the rejection of their preachers, could not rob them of their joy in the Lord. They, they continued and went on in it. I want to end with a thought about worthiness. You notice how in verse 46, it says, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you reject it, repudiate it, and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. Let's talk for a minute about worthiness. Worthiness should be uppermost on our minds because it's the way we're judged before God, and it should be uppermost on our minds when we come to the Lord's table because it's very important that we approach this in a worthy manner. What? makes you worthy. Here are these people who judged themselves unworthy of eternal life. And that's a very hard-hitting word, statement to be made. They judged themselves unworthy of eternal life. That's hard-hitting, but if you look at it from the other way around, there's something very sweet for us in it, okay? What is the worthiness that God requires? If you had to deduct that from just this verse alone, what would you conclude? What is the worthiness that God requires of you? If you judge yourself unworthy by rejecting the gospel, by rejecting Jesus and refusing to trust in him, 
how do you judge yourself worthy? Believing. Believing. All other attempts at obtaining worthiness before God are utterly useless. They're vain. They're damnable. Because it's impossible. The distance between the holiness of God and your fallen, sinful, disobedient, rebellious nature is too great. If you died, this is a cliche question, but if you died tonight, if you died now and had to stand before God in judgment, and he said, what should I say? How, what do you say? Why, why are you here? And uh, what is your interest in my heavenly eternal kingdom? What would you say? Paul and all the scriptures testify to this one right answer. I have no righteousness of my own. I don't have a claim here, except Jesus has died for me. And his sacrifice is sufficient for my sin. And I claim him as my Lord and Savior based on the promise and the offer of the gospel, which has been proclaimed to me, and I believe it. That's enough right there to establish all the worthiness that God requires. Because his son is worthy, and you trust in him. There is no other worthiness that God will accept. That's it. And that's what they're rejecting, and in so doing, they judge themselves unworthy of eternal life. If you want eternal life, you want to be worthy of it, look to him who is worthy of it, and trust by faith. That's what God offers to you. It's what Paul is here preaching to this group, and it's before you today. You've heard it too. And you'll have the, you have the same option and choice before you that this group, these Jews and God-fearing Gentiles had before them. What are you going to choose? Are you going to believe in the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins? Or are you going to persist in your unbelief? God is good. Come to him. Accept his terms. They're so simple. It just means you give up your pride. You bow your knees to him. And you believe that he is merciful to those who are humble. Just as he says. Let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word, for the witness and ministry of the Apostle Paul by which you have opened the door of heaven to us. Thank you for him and his work and your calling on his life. I pray, Father, that you would fill us now with true faith in your Son and stir up the faith that you have put in our hearts so that as we come and partake of this meal, 
we would do so with belief, trust in you, and benefit powerfully by your Spirit from it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.